And as uh, both kindergarten through fifth, as well as junior high school students are heading out, John will, would love to have you uh, participate with him and what he's doing. I want to ask the rest of you to open up your Bibles to First Peter. We just started a sermon series last week on the letters of Peter. We'll be looking at First Peter and Second Peter. And we just started with two verses last week. The introduction to this letter, and in just two verses, Peter invoked the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and gave us this beautiful reflection on this understanding of ourselves as being chosen. Chosen by God, not because of what we do, not because of what we will do. Chosen, in fact, in spite of what we won't do. The bumps and bruises that we'll get along the way, the ways in which we'll forget and fall asleep and out and out rebel. And in that beautiful reflection of being chosen by God, Peter continues his letter to the churches he's writing to in Asia Minor, what's modern-day Turkey. And I want to invite uh, John or Val Finch, who, if you're here, to come and read to us from the continuation of this letter. Um, we will be looking at verses 3 through 12 in chapter 1. So if you turn to your Bibles on page 850, John Finch, one of our elders, is going to read to us from 1 Peter. Good, good morning. As Pastor Chris was saying, the uh, readings found page 850 of your Pew Bible. And we're reading in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through your faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ is in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. John? Keep those Bibles open. Keep those Bibles open in 1 Peter chapter 1. We move from an introduction, two verses last week, to a blessing. 
that Peter gives here at the start of the letter. And, it, and as, it's, as all letters in this time period were intended to do, it points to some of the major themes that Peter's going to come back around to. Now, what I, get ready to have your mind blown a little bit this morning. What you see in front of you, what our elder John just read, verses 3 to 12, in English encompass several sentences, but in Greek is one sentence. That's right. We have perhaps the longest run-on sentence in the history of the world, right here in First Peter. I'm quite serious. This is all a single sentence that Peter writes, and it's packed to the brim with things. And it, it centers around a blessing. As I said, Peter speaks a word of blessing. What is he speaking a word of blessing for? Why are we praising God? For salvation. He repeats that word three times just in this sentence alone. He speaks a word of blessing for salvation, and he, he tries to give a, get, to, get us to envision this salvation with two different ways of understanding it. And it's really important we kind of key in on the way he describes this salvation. First, he describes this salvation as a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That first image of what, that way of understanding the blessing of salvation kind of aligns with uh, a term we often use in the faith. It's kind of hackneyed a little bit, being born again. You know, that came from a time when Nicodemus, a great teacher, came to Jesus and asked about what Jesus was doing, and Jesus spoke about being born again, and we often talk about coming into the faith and being born again, and like I said, it sort of has gotten a, become a little bit of a tired expression, but Peter breathes it new life when he aligns this understanding of what it means to say we are children of God, we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever made this connection before when we talk about being born again or being a child of God. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, we were brought into this world. We were created in the image of God, created to reflect God's glory. That's how we know who we are. We're children, and God is our Father because we're created in the image of our Father. But what Peter's alluding to and other scripture writers will is that when we are born into again into a living hope, this new birth, we are created again. We're recreated in the image of God. We're recreated in the image of Christ. And so we reflect the glory of God in Christ in our new birth. This idea of birth, this idea of becoming children doesn't sit well with many of us. We don't think well about going backwards. But what's being invoked here by Peter is this idea of we, we start over. We start fresh in Christ. We begin a life where we grow up into our true identity we grow up and we're saved from the false hope of false identities. This, this sort of mirrors what we reflected on last week, this idea that this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is a reflection of us being chosen, that we have been chosen by God, fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the first image that Peter gives to understand this blessing of salvation. The second is it, we're, we're blessed by an inheritance Salvation that's an inheritance that Peter writes will never perish, spoil, or fade. So understand this. Not only are we given a fresh, clean start, not only are we, do we have the stability of, of, a, of a foundation in which we know we're chosen, we belong, but Peter also wants to add that we have a secured and guaranteed finish. Let me put it to you this way. When Peter speaks of salvation being an inheritance, what he's trying to get at is, beloved, before we do anything, we already have everything. That's what an inheritance is. It's something that's been passed on to you. You didn't do anything. Your parents leave it for you. You inherit it. And so Peter's trying to emphasize, not only do we have this fresh, clean start, but we have this secured, guaranteed finish because before we do anything, we already have everything. We're not working to survive, to endure 
That's not the, the orientation of our lives in Christ. We're not working to survive or endure. We're working out of the promise, the trust that is already ours. We're working out of what we've already been given. And again, we've been given everything, everything we need. So notice what Peter does here. Peter talks of our past and he talks of our future. That's what our, the way he wants us to see our salvation. In terms of our past birthed into this living hope and our future, this inheritance that'll never perish, spoil, or fade. And then he just further surrounds it by saying that this salvation that's ours, that he talks in terms of our past and our future, he writes, it's guarded by God's power. It's guarded by God's power. Not by our power, not by anything we do. It's guarded, protected by God's power. And where is God's power most evident? Through his faithfulness. It's guarded by God's power through his faithfulness. That God does what he says he's going to do. That what God promises, he fulfills. That what God starts, he completes. To help us just kind of sit a little bit more deeply into what Peter is presenting to us, I want to give you an analogy. Just two ways of seeing how we can live our lives, which is teasing out what Peter's getting at. The first is not a way that I think that most of us would describe ourselves. And yet, it's functionally how many of us live. Many of us live as if we're born orphans. We live as if we're born orphans, spiritually. We come into this world and we wonder where we came from. We wonder who we're like. And we, we spend our lives when we live spiritually as orphans searching for or trying to establish our identity. As we talked about last week, that proverbial line where we're continually trying to say, pick me, pick me. And when you, you live spiritually as an orphan, when you're wondering where you came from, what you're like, when you're hoping to get picked, you work really hard to secure tomorrow. We have that expression, you live paycheck to paycheck. You work really hard because nothing's certain when you're living spiritually as an orphan. Things are only as sure as our next accomplishment, our next, the next place that we get to. But Peter gives us a different image from how we often live, a different way of seeing our lives. And it's one that's repeated throughout Scripture. Instead of seeing ourselves spiritually as orphans, we are to see ourselves as sons and daughters, born, coming into the world, knowing our lineage, knowing where we come from. And when we look in the mirror, we're not searching for or trying to establish our identity. We look in the mirror and we see the family resemblance. And we live our lives not trying to figure out our identity, not trying to, to secure or establish it, but when we are born as sons and daughters of our Father, as children of God, our lives are, are about discovering our identity. It's a subtle shift, but a significant one. We're discovering. We're continuing to realize through our lives how chosen we are. We come to a deeper and more intimate awareness of how chosen we are. We're not wondering about ourselves. We're coming to appreciate our uniqueness our distinctiveness, how fearfully and wonderfully as we looked in Psalm 139 a couple of weeks back, we are made and remade. And out of that place, that, that again, that, sta that stability, when we know spiritually we are a child of God, we aren't working hard to secure tomorrow. As a child of God, we're, hard, we're hardly working. We're hardly working because instead we're living out of the passion and the excitement of being funded, of being backed. And when we're living that way, we're not working so hard because nothing is certain. Things are not just only as sure as our next accomplishment or achievement. Instead, we're living as if nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. Failure is never final because the destination 
The inheritance is never in doubt. This is the the picture that Peter wants to give us. And and if you've got it in front of you, he says this picture of past and future, this picture of new birth and inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. He, He goes on to say all of this leads to joy. It's not conditional. It might might lead to joy. He's just very upfront about it. In all this, he writes, you greatly rejoice. Not you will, not you might. You greatly rejoice. All this leads to joy. And then he goes on to say, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I don't know if you catch this, but it should kind of stick out like a sore thumb. Peter has spoken about blessing, praise. He's invoking joy. And yet in the same breath, he's talking about blessing and joy in the midst of grief and suffering. If you're not familiar with this letter, the context in which Peter is writing, he's tipped this already in the first two verses, but the context he's writing to people who are facing alienation, who are living under persecution for living by their faith. And I have to say, as a brief aside, as we go through First Peter, we really need to recognize, there's a, for us, in this part of the world, there's a little bit of distance from what, what Peter is writing about than where we actually live. Peter's writing to a community of people in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who literally their lives are on the line, their communities, their families are at stake for living by their faith, out of their faith. The, the, the parallel for that in our world today is not here where we live, but the parallel for what Peter is talking about today is countless of followers of Jesus around the world in third world countries, in predominantly Muslim nations who are subject today to hostility, abuse, even the threat of death for their devotion and obedience to Jesus. It's really important as much as this can speak to us, we recognize we are far removed from the immediacy of what Peter is talking about. But as we think about that, that Peter's words written thousands of years ago still speak to many believers like us today, it ought to give us pause. It ought to wake us up. Some of us are, connect, are tuned into this. Others of us are asleep. And we cannot, when we think how Peter's words speak even today, we cannot turn a blind eye. We cannot remain silent to the faith of the witness of our brothers and sisters around the world who are literally putting their lives on the line for following Jesus Christ. And what that means, my friends, is that when we stop and are suddenly aware of that for the first time or made aware of it again, we need to remember why it is so important that we are a place of prayer. Why we are a place where we are continually lifting up the nations, lifting up our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for their faith. If you don't know what to pray for, pray for that because they need our prayers. But it's more than just prayer. It wakes us up to realize that like Peter, this is why Peter writes, we, not, we also have to have advocacy. We have to speak up for those who don't have a voice. We have to speak up for those who don't have anyone encouraging them, looking out for them. So again, as we continue to go through this letter, I, I, I'm gonna probably say this, repeat this because you know, we, we can't trivialize the immediacy of what Peter's talking about. It can speak to us, but we have to hold intention. This is talking about much weightier, much greater things. The conditions under which we live out our faith are vastly different from the people that Peter was writing to and the people throughout the world. We are comfortable. We are comfortable in our faith. And it'll be a sermon for another time, probably in Peter, where I'll ask the question, are we too comfortable? Are we too comfortable? Is our inability to relate to what Peter is talking about say something about how we are, if we are actually living out our faith following Jesus? Because as Peter's gonna continue to push, if we're truly following Jesus, 
our choices, our lifestyle will be different. And the very nature of making different choices, the very nature of a different lifestyle will cause us to feel alienated, to feel like exiles. It will cause us at times to feel persecuted. If we truly turn the other cheek, if we truly love our enemies, if we truly practice forgiveness on those who aren't even asking for our forgiveness, if we truly give things away, we're not giving things with interest, we're not taking them out on loan, but truly just giving away what we've been given, it turns heads. It'll tick people off. We will stand out. We will rock the status quo. But again, We'll see that as we press on and as Peter unpacks what this looks like. What I want to key in on, as I've kind of alluded to, is what, again, I think is just a, a very odd thing for us. Peter talks about blessing and joy, as I said, in the midst of grief and suffering. And what I want to suggest to you is that for most of us, in how we live our lives, from our perspective, we don't normally associate blessing with isolation and estrangement. <laughs> We wouldn't put those two things together. We don't associate joy. Joy for us, from our perspective, joy is a result of the absence of suffering, right? We don't associate joy with being in the midst of suffering. So there's something funky going on here. What is Peter getting at? And again, by way of review, if you weren't with us last week, I want to highlight two, and it's a gen broad generalization, but it works, that there's two ways to perceive suffering in the world in which we live. And this is so important as we talk about this letter. Two, two ways, and we could break it down a little bit more, but in general, two ways. As I talked about last week, there's suffering that exists because we live in a broken, fallen world. We live in a world that is not completely under the reign of Christ. Suffering that, it, that takes place not because it's God's will per se, but because God allows it to happen. It's suffering that results in our lives that's the consequences of the choices we make. It's suffering that results in our lives because of the consequences of other choices that other people make. Our choices impact each other. That's one type of suffering we encounter. But there's also another type of suffering that we experience, and that suffering comes through trials, through testing. And that's suffering that comes because God is leading us in that direction. It's the friction. It's the tension. It's the resistance born of growth of training in righteousness or holiness, as Peter will talk about it. We're pushed by God. We're stretched. We're broken down and we're built back up. Again, important to understand those two ways to perceive suffering. But interestingly, if you have your Bible open, Peter doesn't distinguish between the two. He puts it all together. He puts it all together and says that in the midst of either kind of suffering, there is blessing and there is joy. He argues, if you see it there, he says suffering is like the fire that refines gold. And if you've ever held gold in your hands, if you've held you know, gold that's pure versus gold that's you know, a certain percentage of gold, you notice the difference. The fire takes out the impurities. And when the impurities are taken out, when you hold something that's purified, gold like that, the shimmer, the shine, the depth and the radiance, you appreciate the difference. And, and Peter is saying that suffering is like that fire that refines and purifies gold. It purifies us, it grows us where the radiance, the luster, the shine of our lives and our faith is dramatically different having gone through that refinement. Peter goes on to argue that, the, that suffering proves the genuineness or the durability of our faith. And this, we may not like to hear this, but we know that it's true. Our strength, our sense of strength, our durability, what we're made of is realized by what we come through, right? What we're made of is realized by what we come through. And in Peter's analogy, what we're made of is realized by coming through the fire, Please hear this. 
We don't want trouble. We don't look for it. But doesn't the unexpected in our lives, doesn't what we're unprepared for reveal the truth? Doesn't what's unexpected, doesn't what we're unprepared for reveal the truth? Let's take, break it down in smaller examples in our life of, of this reality. It is easy in our relationships to say, I love you. We can say, I love you to our mother or our father. We can say, I love you to our brother or our sister. We can say, I love you to our children. We can say, I love you to our spouse. It's easy to say, I love you. It's something that many of us just can say, we say all the time. It's easy to say, I love you until love doesn't come easy. Until all of a sudden, that person does something, acts in a certain way that pushes us, do we really mean it when we say that we love them? Will we love them? And not just say it, will we actually apply ourselves to loving them? It's not hard to say, here's what I believe. We live in a world where more and more people are just empowered. Go, you know, it's my God-given right to let everybody know what I believe. No one hinders away from telling you what they believe. We live in an age of rants. We live in an age where people give them, give them five minutes and they'll go off on what they believe. It's easy to tell you what I believe. It's easy to say what I believe. Until your belief is challenged and you have to defend it. And isn't it sad that we live more and more in a world where we say what we believe, but we don't allow each other the ability to defend what we believe? There used to be a time where we could disagree without being disagreeable, as I like to say. Where you and I could believe different things and the truth of the matter would come out of us each defending our beliefs and speaking out of that. But you turn on the news, you turn on the TV, you open up, you just sit and listen to conversations at times. And rather than defend what we believe, we shout what we believe and we prove what we believe by shouting louder or talking longer than the other person. If we can just get them to shut up, then we've proven what we believe. And the reality is, is it doesn't prove anything other than we got bad manners. It doesn't prove what we believe. It's easy to say, here's what I believe until your belief is challenged and you have to defend it. We can say we believe in Jesus and I assume all of us here today do. We can say we believe in Jesus. We can know all the right things to say and do. As Christians, many of us have grown up in the faith. We know the Christian cliches. We know the scriptures, the go-to scriptures. We can know all the right things to say and do. We know what it can, can even look like to look like a Christian, how to represent ourselves as a Christian. We could say we believe in Jesus, but whether or not we actually are following Jesus is revealed when the difficulty comes, when the challenges rise. That's when it's revealed who or what we believe in. Peter is arguing that our faith, like gold, is precious. Our faith, like gold, is precious. And like gold, it's tested. But notice if you have your Bibles open what Peter also says. Our faith, like gold, is precious. Our faith, like gold, is tested. But unlike gold, and we all, still in our world today, value gold. If you had some gold in your hands, that's a keeper, right? Gold, that's something that's got means, it's valuable. But Peter says, unlike gold, our faith doesn't perish. Gold is precious. Gold is tested. It's valuable. But gold will ultimately perish. But Peter says, this is where the distinction breaks down. Our faith doesn't perish. Our faith endures. And we don't realize the truth of this, my friends. We don't realize the endurance of our faith. We don't realize that our salvation really saves us. Do you know that your salvation really saves you? 
We can say we've been saved by Christ, but do you know, have you experienced how this salvation, this new birth, this inheritance really saves us? We don't know that if nothing ever happens in our lives. I have lots of chairs in my life. I'm a big believer in chairs. I think chairs are a wonderful creation. Whoever invented them, good for them. I can say I believe in a chair, but my belief isn't a proven faith until I risk sitting down on it. And I'm going to be honest with you guys this morning, as I try to always be. I, I prefer to take a pass on suffering. I, I would prefer to take a pass on suffering on my own. I, I, would choose, I would prefer to choose the path with the least drama and stress. I would prefer on my own to choose the path with the fewest dips and the curves. I'd like the straight line to glory. Anybody else want to go with me? Straight line to glory. Yes. On my own, I would choose that. But I'm not on my own. I'm not even my own person. I'm chosen. I'm part, Peter is going to continue to unpack for us, I'm part of something great far bigger than myself. I can fight that. I can resist that. And many people fight and resist that, but it doesn't make it any less true. Again, back to the smaller analogies of life. As we live this life, don't we gravitate towards the people who've been through stuff? Don't we gravitate to the people who've gone through things? I mean, again, as we live this life, we encounter, as I said before, lots of people who prognosticate, who tell us what they believe, who give us all kinds of advice. But isn't the immediate thing we, in the midst of all the opinions, all the advice, all the beliefs, aren't what we're looking for is, what have you lived? What do you know? What have you walked through? What have you experienced? And doesn't that suggest that we recognize that our faith has to be tested? Isn't this why we gravitate towards God in Christ? We don't just worship a God who's far away from us. We don't just worship a God even who merely empathizes with our sufferings. Oh, my poor children, how you suffer. We gravitate towards a God who, who came into history, who came to be with us as Christ. This, every t- again, every time I say this, I, it, I can't... It's such a short sentence, but it's difficult for me to comprehend, and I don't think I can say it enough. Do we understand what this salvation is that we have that Peter describes? We don't have a God who simply empathizes with our sufferings. When Jesus suffers, God suffers. Do you hear that? We have a God who suffers with us. And I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but if someone had delivered Jesus from his suffering, he could not have delivered us from ours. God, our creator, our father, experiences temporary suffering so he could prevent our eternal suffering. So he could lead us into eternal glory. And that's why Peter, don't misunderstand, he's not being hard-hearted when he says, you know, rejoice, even though for a little while you're suffering all kinds of trials. He's not being dismissive in it. He's trying to be realistic. He's trying to get people to see with the eyes that he sees, which is that in the immediacy of the moment, it's real, it's happening, but in the, in the span of eternity, it's a little thing. It's a little thing. Suffering, trials, and temptations, you see, they make us risk everything by trusting Jesus. When we suffer, when we experience trials, when we face temptation, it forces us. It forces us to do something we don't normally do. It forces us to give up on everything else but him. We have to give up on ourselves. 
And we find that everything else we want to trust is suddenly it falls away as it perishes. The wealth that we have, the comfort that we have, the security and control, it all gets stripped away. And in the midst of suffering, trials, and temptations, all we can do is venture everything on Christ. And in that moment, Christ proves trustworthy. And our faith matures. That's what Peter's getting. Our faith matures as our vision improves widening and expanding as we see, see it rather than just say it. We see that God really is at work in our lives. As Peter writes, our trust is fully realized as we continue to see how God is beautifully completing this story that we're all in. I want to challenge you this morning, maybe later on today, maybe this week. I really want you to do this. I want you to list the best and the worst things that have ever happened to you. List the best and the worst things that have ever happened to you. And what I'm going to suggest you're going to find, which speaks to what Peter's getting at, is as you make that list, the longer you've lived, the more you'll see an overlap between the two lists. The more you will see an overlap between the two lists. Because what Peter is getting at in what he bookends here is that God uses some of the worst things in our lives to accomplish some of the best And that is not to say that God purposes for all things to happen to us, that God wills it, but God uses some of the worst things in our lives to accomplish his best. What Peter is saying is it's a matter of perspective. And the perspective is this, my my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, are we living eternally or are we living temporally? Are we living eternally or are we living temporally? What Peter's writing here, we don't see things like this. We don't see things like this unless it's pointed out to us. That's why this is so helpful. Why don't we see it? Why does it need to be pointed out to us? Because we tend to live in the moment, don't we? We tend to exist in the present. We get up each day, and I don't know if we even think about it, but we get up and we we live as if we're finding ourselves in the middle of the story. It's like we have amnesia. We forget the beginning. We forget where we've come from. We forget how we got here. And that's expressed by one of our colloquialisms. What have you done for me lately? We forget where we've come from. And at the same time, in our present, we worry about what we perceive as an unpredictable future. We worry about how it all ends. We live as if we don't know the conclusion of the story. How it all turns out. Where we'll eventually be. And this is epitomized by the question we all ask ourselves in our fear and anxiety. What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? And what Peter is saying is there is no what if. There is no what if. We live in the moment. We can't help ourselves. Uh, Again, I want to, in the context of of making this point of living in the moment, I want to share a story um, of how easily we can live in the moment. When we were were up in Seattle, serving a church in Seattle, we had this opportunity. We planned the, what I thought was the epic family vacation. New minivan, dog, kids, Washington. We were going to go and do an epic family vacation. I mapped it out. Three national parks. Three national monuments all in one summer. That's right. From Washington all the way to Mount Rushmore and everything in between. Bam! It was going to be so good. Never again would we have this opportunity in our lifetime. So we pack up, we go, we leave on Sunday. Leave on Sunday and we drove to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Anyone been to Coeur d'Alene? Beautiful, right? I wouldn't know. I showed up, it was dark and it was raining and it was one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Tired. It's okay. 
My wife's going to keep me honest. I didn't mention this in the first service. We had a big family fight in the car because I preached before we left and I never have done that again. Um, so it's already kind of, you know, a little rocky. But we're there. All right. We're at the KOA in Coeur d'Alene. Beth and, and Emma much, is very small. Go and take care of some things. Ethan, much smaller with me. We're getting the sleeping bags out so we can hit the sack and get up in the next morning. So we get out the sleeping bags. Got Dante, our little dog. And if you've never met Dante before, he's a little Italian greyhound. And he's called Dante because when Dante gets going, he's like Dante's Inferno, the eight circles of hell. That's what I'm getting at here. So... Sleeping bags are out. I'm setting them up. I say to Ethan, Ethan, here, give him the leash of the dog. Just make, keep your eye on Dante, okay? Dad's going to set up the sleeping bags. And Ethan, while playing his Nintendo DS, goes, okay, Dad, sure. So, put out my sleeping bag. Zoom, go to do Ethan's sleeping bag. And as I'm going to do Ethan's sleeping bag, out of the corner of my eye, I look, and there's Dante taking a leak on my sleeping bag. <laughs> Ethan's all like... I'm like, Ethan, oh, 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 oh. I'm like, okay, can you keep your eye on the dog while I put your mom and Emma's sleeping bag out? Okay, watch the dog. I got it, Dad. Okay. Go to get Beth's sleeping bag, get that, start to get Emma's look, and Dante's peeing on Ethan's sleeping bag. <laughs> I lost it. I lost it. Beth comes back with Emma, walks in the door, and she, it's, you know you've lost it when your wife walks in with your daughter and they both go, why'd we do this vacation? Why'd we bring this dog? And and Flip it up. Beth, I'll never forget this. Beth, in the midst of my, probably my head doing a 360, grab, makes everyone grab hands and we're going to pray because we're under spiritual attack. I'm so, so I'm, I'm, it's bad. I mean, try, pray you never see me like this. <laughs> I grab the sleeping bags. I'm like, I'm just going to go and try to find a laundromat. And they're all like, well, you go, you go as long as you need to. <laughs> grab the sleeping bags, drive in the van. I'm in Coeur d'Alene. It's like I said, it's like one o'clock in the morning. It's raining. And I literally find this one stretch. There's nothing, man, except for this one stretch, this one street that has a bar and a gas station and a gas station and a laundromat. And there I am at 1.30 in the morning, popping my quarters into the washing machine, watching my sleeping bags turn round and round. The only other person in that laundromat is an overweight woman smoking cigarettes like they're going out of style, just sitting there. <laughs> and I, in that moment, in the moment, I literally forgot where we'd come from. All the things that enabled us to take this trip, all the things that were, were led into getting us on the road, getting us here. And in that moment, I dreaded the future. I'm like, oh my God, we're only in Idaho. We're going all the way to Mount Rushmore. This could be like the worst vacation ever. We could be eating the dog by the end of the trip. And I'm not kidding. I'm, 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 I'm so stuck in that place that as I'm watching my laundry turn round and round those sleeping bags, I'm literally tempted to quit. I'm starting to think, you know what? We're just going to pack up the car. We're going to go home. We're done. We're going home. We're going home. We're not doing this. It's so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy to live in the present because the present is so well present. And, and, and again, this is not even close to what I just described. But for the early Christians who received this letter for Peter, please understand their present was an imposing shadow over them. 
Their present was a government that was hostile to them living out of their faith. Their present was a culture they were surrounded by, obsessed with pleasure. Their present were marriages around them that were falling apart, families that were falling apart. Their present was suffering that came in the form of temptation and lies spoken against them. And like them, my example is totally different, but like them, and maybe you can relate to this, the present is all I have in front of me. So it's all I allow myself to see, all my present problems, all my present struggles, all my present fears, all my present questions about what to do just stare me in the face. But here's what's interesting. Going back to that trip. It's all over now. And I can laugh about it. I can tell you that night in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, I never imagined that I'd be telling that story. And I guarantee you that if any of you had laughed that night, I would kill you. <laughs> I can share that story without the same anger or frustration. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I remember the views in Glacier National Park. Because I remember the beauty of the Grand Tetons because I remember the wonders of Mount Rushmore and Devil's Tower and, and Yellowstone, experiencing that with my kids. On, see, being on the other side, having seen the beginning and the end, I don't hesitate now as I stand before you to declare it was all worth it. It was all worth it. You ever ask yourself this? Why is, is, why is Good Friday called Good Friday? Why isn't it called Bad Friday? Why isn't it called Bad Friday? Because we see it in retrospect. Out of the appallingly bad came the inexpressibly good. That good trumps the bad because although the bad was temporary, the good is eternal. My friends, some of us are living our lives as if it's bad Friday rather than good Friday. Some of us are living as if we're still nailed to the cross and Peter says, no, you've been born into a living hope from Christ's resurrection from the dead. See, that's the thing. What if, what if we could live like that all the time? Because if you probably have been paying attention to my story, here's the key, is that how, what, if, what if we could live our lives where we didn't just know, re remember the beginning, but we could know how it was going to turn out? Because in my story, it's better now because now I have the end and the beginning. It's easier for me to look back. But what if we could live in the present, not only knowing the beginning, but also knowing the end? And if you're tracking with me, that's what Peter wants us to get. We can. We can live knowing not only the beginning, but the end. We can live eternally living between two poles, between two fixed points. We can live on the one hand between knowing our new birth, knowing this living hope that's, that we're grounded in, that's foundational, that we're chosen, that we belong, but we have this other fixed point that we, is absolutely solid and secure, this inheritance, this imperishable, incorruptible, secure destiny that we have. And what Peter is saying is with those bookends of our past and our future, there can be joy in the middle. Now let's be clear, and Peter will go on in the letter. Peter isn't telling us just to suck it up. Peter isn't saying, arguing that we need to say it's good all the time. Peter isn't saying we need to say it's good if my leg breaks. It's good if my spouse leaves me. It's good if my house burns down. It's good if I get diagnosed with something life-threatening. It's good if I get robbed or beat up. It's good if my child dies. Peter doesn't say that. Peter doesn't say we have to say it's good. What Peter is emphasizing is no matter how crazy, no matter how bad, no matter how intense the middle gets, it doesn't change the beginning and it doesn't affect the end.
And that's why Peter writes, all these trials for a little while will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. But he doesn't just make it future. He says that when we think of the end, the salvation of our souls, we, aren't, we will be lifted up. No, he says we are lifted up with this inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter is assuring us when we're tempted to give up, to keep pressing on, when all, to keep pressing on to that moment when we'll all be seated at what the Bible calls the wedding feast of the Lamb, when we'll be celebrating the end of life as we've known it and the beginning of life as we'll know it forever, that time that we will experience a life without suffering, a life without pain, a life without tears, a life without death. And as we sit at that table together, each one of us looking each other in the eye, we will say, it was worth it. It was worth it. One more way to think of this. I just, I love this, so I gotta share it with you. The author, Randy Alcorn, talks about the same idea that Peter's getting at this way. He writes, before my mother baked a cake, she'd lay out the ingredients on the kitchen counter. One day I tasted each ingredient. Flour, baking soda, raw eggs, vanilla extract. I discovered that almost everything that goes into a cake tastes terrible by itself. But a remarkable metamorphosis took place when my mother used her knowledge and skill to mix the ingredients in just the right amounts and bake them at just the right temperature. The cake tasted delicious. In a similar way, he writes, the individual ingredients of trials and tragedies taste bitter to us. And no translation of Romans 8.28 says, each thing by itself is good. No, every translation of Romans 8.28 reads, all things work together for good, and not on their own, but under God's sovereign hand. God, in his wisdom, measures and mixes and regulates the heat to produce something wonderful, Christ-likeness, for his glory and our good. Are we living temporally or are we living eternally? Are our lives marked by everlasting joy? Or do you find yourself living with the ebbs and flows of passing happiness? Moments of joy. We all have moments of joy, don't we? We all have moments of joy in this life. That moment of joy when you score the winning goal or when you get a standing ovation in the play, that moment of joy when you graduate from school, that moment of joy on the day of your wedding, that moment of joy the first time you hold your newborn son or daughter in your arms, that moment of joy when you get the keys to your first car or to your first home. We all experience moments of joy. And those moments can fill us with great satisfaction and security until the moment fades until the moment fades and the joy is no longer there, or at least not in the same way. You graduate, but you can't find a job. After your wedding day comes your first year of marriage, which isn't as planned, it isn't as perfect, or as consistently beautiful as that day was. Your baby is born, but soon after decides not to sleep. And then they turn two. <laughs> you buy that new car. You get that new home. And then you find a scratch on the paint. Or the roof starts to leak. The question that we're always asking in these moments of joy, the question that we're always asking, 
Is there joy that can be found that is lasting? Is there a joy to be found that transcends time, that transcends our circumstances, that transcends even our emotions or our feelings? And in this one run-on sentence, with this majestic view of the past, present, and future of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God promises to do, the answer, according to the Apostle Peter, is a resounding yes. Yes. Everlasting joy can be found not in our circumstances, but in God in Christ. In the past and future work of God, our present is changed immensely. This word of God tells us that yesterday, today, and tomorrow all revolve around the power and work of the gospel, the birth of a living hope, and the promise of an inheritance that cannot fail. The center holds because those two fixed points are there. Everlasting joy is found. It's unleashed in the plans and promises of God revealed and fulfilled in Christ. My friends, you've heard this before, but hear it maybe differently today. It's our relationship to him that defines us. This is what Peter will continue to hit at. It isn't the quality of or the quantity of our faith that saves us. Please, please hear that. It isn't the quality or the quantity of our faith that saves us. And I get into countless conversations where people will speak of their faith. I don't know enough. I don't understand enough. I don't have enough faith. My faith isn't strong enough. My faith isn't developed enough. My it's not the quality or the quantity of our faith that saves us as Peter defines it. And he's not alone. It's the direction of our faith. Faith directed towards Christ, whether big or small, whether weak or strong, faith directed towards Christ is saving faith. If we direct our faith to him for our cleansing, believing in his finished work on the cross, the promises of God, a future in him, then we can be joyous today. Today. Today we can face suffering and see in the light of yesterday and tomorrow, knowing it's not in vain. We're simply following the pattern of suffering then glory, which Christ walked before us. We can experience joy today. Today we can walk with a living hope because Christ, our living hope, guards us. Through our present trials, all the past and future work of God matures our faith into a salvation that spans the ages. My friends, may we, together, in and through Jesus, discover that in Christ we have received a joy that is timeless a joy that transcends our difficulties, a joy that transcends our struggles, a joy that is everlasting. Amen.